Welcome to the Politics of Special Forces podcast. In this 10-part limited series, join me, Kevin D. Stringer, and me, Christian Breed, as we examine just what Special Operations Forces, or SOF, does, and how that might need to change as we move into this new era of great power competition. Well, we are very excited to be back after a rather lengthy summer break. Thank you for continuing to follow our work on the Politics of Special Forces podcast. Today we're joined by Brigadier General Steve Hunter. Currently the Deputy Commander of Canadian Special Operations Forces Command, Brigadier General Hunter previously served as the Commander of the Canadian Special Operations Regiment, or CSOR. He has over 25 years of military experience with almost 20 within the Special Operations Forces community here in Canada, including almost a decade with Canada's Special Mission Force, Joint Task Force 2. In our discussion today, Kevin and I explore the various elements that constitute Canada's Special Operations Forces capability and talk about the importance of integration, recruitment, and deterrence within a Special Operations Forces context. It was a wide-ranging discussion and we are grateful for Brigadier General Hunter's openness and frankness. It was a great conversation. And now we give you Brigadier General Stephen Hunter. Thank you so much, uh, Brigadier General Hunter, for uh, for joining us today. This is a real pleasure. I know you're you're very busy, and I'm I'm, I'm thrilled that you're able to carve some time out of your schedule to uh, to sit with us and, and discuss um, all things CanSoft and how it fits into the bigger picture. So, um, what I'd like to start off with is just a, a real real quick question about you know what is CSOR? You know, given the international audience that we're hoping to to attract with this series, uh, not everyone's maybe going to be familiar with that four letter acronym. Um, what is it? How does it fit into the bigger picture? Yeah, so it, great question, uh, Christian. And, and before I start, I just I want to do two things um, before I kick off. First, I just want to tip my hat to, to you and Kevin for this podcast. Um, I've taken the opportunity to listen to the episodes you've done to date, uh, and I'm really impressed with the quality and the uh, the way that you've articulated SOF uh, in, the, in the current operating environment. So a couple of things that jump out from the first episode that I really liked. Um, I get asked a lot, and when we spend a lot of time talking about great power competition and what does that mean for SOF, but the way that you framed it as a heuristic or a mental model for understanding what, trying to understand anyways, what's going on globally right now, I think is really important. So instead of tangible examples, it offers an overview of, of what's happening out there, whether it's in the counterterrorism space, counterviolent extremist organization space, or uh, working with more, uh, more NATO-oriented partners, it offers a, a really good model for, uh, for, for looking at the world as we see it today. Uh, we've seen the hegemon become, you know, a party of three uh, with the introduction or the re re revisionist power of Russia and the rise of China. So these are all things that uh, that really fit within that mental model. So I think that was really valuable. And the second thing I would point out uh, that I think you and Kevin did a great job of, of talking about is SOF as an integrator. Um, we started to talk about operations pan domain. So the traditional land, sea and air uh, environments. But these emerging domains of information, uh, space, and cyber, and you know, SOF as a as a, an organization within the military instrument is active in all of those areas. So we often get tied to the land domain just by nature of the majority, the historical tasks, anyways, that we've done. But we are uh, we are operating in all six of those domains. So um, again, uh, I think you guys did a really great job of that. Um, I think the episode with Gail and Bert uh, demonstrated the cognitive conflict that's taken place. Not only in Kansofcom, but I would argue across the board, uh, these discussions that take place, two, two individuals that I have the highest respect for, 
different sides of the coin on, on soft's value moving forward. Um, but that really represents the discussion that's happening, uh, especially with this commander, with Major General Boivin. Uh, we spend a lot of time talking about, you know, where what is soft's role going to be moving forward as we transition a little bit less uh, in the counter-violent extremist organization space and more into the, uh, the, uh, the great power competition, competition space, as you will. So I think that's been really good to date. And I, I just wanted to tip my hat to you and Kevin for that. The second thing I'd offer, uh, Christian, before we get into uh, the Canadian Special Operations Regiment, which is near and dear to my heart, being a former CEO, uh, is the unique nature of CANSOFCOM. So the Canadian Special Operations Forces Command consists of uh, five units, uh, all under a headquarters. And we're very unique amongst partners in that uh, it's all in one house. So we force employ, obviously, uh, within the Canadian Special Operations Force Command. But we also have all the units within the command. So we force generate, unlike our partners, many of whom uh, their, uh, their, their units um, come from the, the various environments from a force generation perspective. And we also force sustain, force manage, and force develop all in-house, which gives us the ability to rapidly transition requirements for the future uh, into, into uh, to, to what we've envisioned requiring today. So it really streamlines and flattens the process. And you know, we often think only through the lens of force employment, a little bit in force generation, but we often forget about force sustainment, force management, and force development. So that's the unique nature of CANSOFCOM. Um, and moving on to CSOR, which, uh, which is the root of your question, the, the Special Ops Regiment. Yeah, so again, um, I think a little bit of history here is important for, for folks to understand. I'll try not to take too much time. The, uh, the Canadian Special Operations Regiment was, uh, was part of uh, Canadian Forces Transformation. So back in 2005, General Hillier had a vision for how to better operationalize the Canadian Armed Forces based on our recent experience at the time in Afghanistan. And part of that was the uh, creation of the Canadian Special Operations Forces Command. So prior to 2005, 2006, uh, Canada had one special operations unit created in 1993, Joint Task Force II, uh, which had assumed um, counterterrorism responsibilities from uh, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. So that domestic mandate, and again, uh, Kevin, for your, for you and, and your uh, your country folk, um, we do have a domestic mandate in Kansofcom, and we sustain that today. So we don't have the restrictions of posi-comitatus uh, that exist down south, um, and that is uh, that is a no-fail task for us. So that uh, that was really core business from 1993 to 2005, and then in 2005 we created Canadian Special Operations Forces headquarters, and as part of that, the Canadian Special Operations Regiment. So the regiment uh, at that time was envisioned very much to be a supporting element to Joint Task Force II to do those tasks like um, the uh, like like many of the the other units around the world do in direct support of of that uh, that unit. What we quickly found out in 2006 2007 is this unit could offer a lot more a lot more than just supporting JTF2. There was capacity there with the great uh, soldiers, sailors, and uh, uh, aviators that we uh, recruit from. From, from the greater CAF to do more. And we saw that early on um, with the Canadian Special Operations Regiment in, in uh, Afghanistan, training uh, the, our Afghan partners. So all operations were conducted with Afghan partners and CSOR really grasped that role and were able to, uh, to quickly build a, a viable uh, partner uh, to, to go out and, and mentor on operations. So we kind of exported that model um, around the world, quite frankly, uh, with operations in the Caribbean, uh, Asia Pacific, Africa specifically, and more recently in Iraq. Um, so really 
we've, we've coined that special warfare. There's various uh, nomenclature out there, depending on which country you're talking about. We hear all of these terms, but within the Canadian context, we call it special warfare. So advise, assist, accompany when, when required. And it's really about adding, uh, you know, enabler capability to partner forces. And the vision there and, and the value of, of that is, is enabling those forces to, 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 to be sustainable moving forward. We all saw what happened recently in Afghanistan with uh, the Afghan forces. Uh, they weren't able to sustain uh, that footprint and, and, and fight the threat at, at bay. Um, and, and that's kind of what we're, we're dealing with in that space right now. So again, uh, yeah. So I think that's the value proposition of C-Store. That's where it comes from. And we can continue to, to talk on that. Yeah, no, sir. That's that's awesome. Thank you so much for that. And and you you uh, you you hit some of the other elements I wanted to bring out, which is how it fits into the broader uh, CanSoftcom organization, and then that's also how it's distinct from JTF two. So I think that's really clear. Um, fascinating stuff. Brigadier Hunter, I'd like to shift a little bit to talk about. You mentioned integration, soft as an integrator, and scholars and practitioners view conventional force and soft integration as being quite essential not only for the counter-violent extremist fight, but also for the future. I'd like to get your perspectives or observations based upon your experiences to date. Then how do you see the future for soft conventional force integration? Yeah, so again, another great question, Kevin. Thank you for that. So the way we work in Canada is, um, again, limited resources, and we've got to be diligent on, on where we're applying those resources from a military perspective. So what happens is depending on the task, there'll be a designated supported commander. Uh, for the most part, that's commander of the Canadian Joint Operations Command, the conventional uh, force employer. Um, the second one is CANSOFCOM, uh, Canadian Special Operations Forces Command, which is, is the designated supported commander for, for soft specific tasks. And then uh, NORAD to a degree is, a, is the third designated supported commander in the Canadian context. Um, within the operations we conduct, so when Commander uh, Kane Joint Operations Command is, is the designated supported commander, we then take on a supporting role, ING. So at that point, we are, uh, we are supporting uh, CJOC. I'll use the acronym now I've uh, spelled it out there. And um, we, uh, we will support them with, with uh, distinct capabilities that they might need for the operations that they're uh, command and controlling overseas. So that's how it works. It's like, you know, if I can put it in the context of the United States, which most people understand, we have one global combatant command for, for the globe, which is uh, the Canadian Joint Operations Command, and CANSOFCOM becomes the uh, theater special operations component or the TSOC globally um, for those, uh, those missions. So what I would tell you, uh, Kevin, is that um, the, uh, the majority of uh, soft conventional integration happens at the operational level uh, between the two headquarters. We're co-located here in Ottawa. Uh, our staffs are completely uh, joined up and work together uh, on, on a daily basis. Commanders talk uh, regularly throughout the week, and that's how we align uh, soft and conventional forces. Now, at the tactical level, which uh, tends to get people a little more interested, uh, I would make a couple of points. The first one is we cannot do nothing alone. Uh, and, you know, we need to the Air Force to get us where we're going on occasion, the Navy. Uh, and we integrate closely with, uh, with those headquarters to make sure that we're all aligned. We're on an extremely high notice to move uh, for crisis response specifically, uh, but nonetheless, we rely on, on those other environments to support us. So there's some integration there. And then the third example I would give you is uh, in the Iraq theater. Uh, you know, we're, we're a small organization and we can't own all the capabilities. So from time to time, we'll go back to the, the Army or the Air Force or others 
and look to be augmented with specific capabilities. So if you think about things like counter mortar radar, uh, intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance assets, or even artillery in the most extreme cases, we would never bring an artillery capability into CANSOFCOM. We would look for the, uh, the, the army to, to augment us with fires, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So those are some of the examples of where that integration takes place. I appreciate the examples. I think one of the issues, certainly in the past, there's been a, a view that conventional force soft integration has been very ad hoc. I'm wondering if there's any practical examples. I mean, you mentioned at the operational level, there's a co-location, but have you done anything special with liaison officers, uh, combined exercises? Are there other things that perhaps you've done that have made this more instinctual? It sounds like it's more instinctual than ad hoc. Are there any pragmatic examples that you could share? Yeah, so what, what I would say, Kevin, is um, again, back to the Canadian context here, which I think is important for people to understand. Cansoffcom uh, is a crisis response organization, and that will, that will be the case uh, today. It's definitely the case today, and that'll be the case for the near to, to midterm. Uh, that is a no-fail task for us, both domestically and expeditionary. So we sustain a number of our elements on a very high notice to move. Um, and then what we talk about is the residual capability. So in a small organization like Canadian Special Operations Forces Command, there is uh, a lot of that uh, capacity is taken up with the crisis response mandate. So we have to be diligent in, in how we parse out the, uh, the, uh, the residual capability, so to speak. And whether that's out of the Canadian Special Operations Regiment, uh, the Canadian Joint Incident Response Unit, which is our, our uh, chemical nuclear biological uh, response organization, we need to be diligent. There's way more demand than there is supply. So when we start parsing all that out and we start looking at Canada's commitments globally, we have to be asking ourselves, what are the realistic uh, na national interests? Where are we going to go? And what are we going to offer? So I'll give you an example. In, in Eastern Europe, for instance, right now, um, it's very much a deterrence mission. And we have uh, Canadian elements. We're leading on the uh, on, on Latvia as, as part of the uh, forward and in, in enhanced uh, posture. Uh, we, uh, we've got elements in Ukraine working there as well. And what we do as, uh, as Canadian Special Operations Forces Command is look to where we can fill in some of the gaps and seams that are, that are difficult for the conventional forces to fill. So it's a partnership. It's primarily a partnership with the Canadian Joint Operations Command. But it's also a partnership with the force uh, generators, the Canadian Army, the Royal Canadian Air Force, and the Royal Canadian Navy, to just see where we might be able to offer uh, some capacity to uh, to meet those mandates on behalf of the government of Canada. All right, sir. Thanks for that. It, it's interesting your your comments about um, the the demand almost outstripping the supply. I think is interesting, and it gets me thinking. This is a bit of a follow up too, and it relates to the first uh, earlier points you were making. And I sort of think of it as, as talent management. And I think it's something that's important to highlight in the Canadian context um, is that as, as far as, as we see it, you know, we recruit in Canada into CanSoftCom from the conventional forces. So it's kind of a fixed supply in many ways. And I know there was discussion at times of recruiting from the street, like in other countries. Um, can you elaborate on that? Uh, sort of how that's how that discussion has been going? Is that something you, you're, you're able to talk about? Because I, I find that the whole discussion of, of soft, you know, becoming sort of the force of choice, especially during the counterterrorism period, really put some emphasis on you know, expanding soft. And that was something that got me into this project uh, early on was you know, the, the caution that I think we have to play with, with expanding too quickly, especially in the Canadian case when our, our supply is, is fixed, unless we expand you know, relatedly the, uh, the conventional forces. Yeah, absolutely, Christian. So a couple of things to, uh, to tease out there. 
Um, you're absolutely right. Our, our value proposition is our agility, our ability to, uh, to get things done quickly. And as stated uh, previously, you're, we are a flat organization. So what does that mean? It means that from time to time, and I'll give you the most extreme case, we will send out teams under the uh, command of a sergeant. That sergeant is two steps removed from parliament. That sergeant reports to commander of CANSOFCOM, two-star general, who reports to the chief of defense staff, who reports to the minister. So the, the problem here is if we, uh, if we grow too big, we could start to lose that agility. And we're cognizant of that. Um, you know, people get uh, obsessed with growth. And I think it's not always, uh, it's, it's not always the way to, to solve all our problems, so to speak. And I think we need to just be a little bit more uh, diligent in the task that we're accepting. Uh, applying the right tool for the job, and in Soft's case, like I said, there is there is uh, an increased demand uh, at, at a cost of the supply that we're able to offer. So I think there's a couple things there that uh, that are interesting to think about. Yeah, off the street is something we have talked about, continue to talk about, but there's risks with that as well. Um, I would say that you know we're in this space right now. Uh, um, we we're, we're obviously addressing culture issues in the Canadian Armed Forces. Uh, CANSOFCOM as a, an organization within the Canadian Armed Forces is no different than anybody else. Uh, and we, we're taking a hard look right now at culture. So General Boivin has just given the direction to delve into culture uh, in ways that we never have before. We're standing up some working groups and we're looking at, uh, at our culture specifically, uh, what's good about it, uh, what needs to change, and what we need to shed, quite honestly, from a culture perspective. Um, recruiting off the street offers some challenges to that. Uh, the the uh, the experience that folks come in right now from the whether it's the Army Navy or Air Force that two to three years of experience at a minimum where they've cut their teeth on military culture and then they come in as a mature sol uh, soldier sailor or aviator so to speak uh, it really it re really adds value but the rub there is that the the Air Forces is, is facing some challenges with recruiting right now we, we're seeing a bit of a hollowing out of the middle at the kind of captain major rank. At the uh, the NC the lower uh, NCO ranks as well, and that's our demographic to come into Cansofcom with the current model. So you can see the challenges there, and I think we would be foolish to close the door on any ideas, um, whether that's off the street recruiting or anything else. So we continue to talk about it, but we're not going to rush to failure on uh, on any of those projects. Yeah, I think it's really important because you know again talking about the the, the value proposition, it's, it's as much about reputation. Um, uh, and uh, as it is about the, the the skills as well, and we'll we'll touch more on that in in, in a few minutes, I think, sir. Uh, but Kevin, you had a question you want to ask. So as the American in the group, this is a great learning podcast for me. So I'd like to come back to your experience as the commander of the Canadian Special Operations Regiment. It's a bit of a multi-part question. So in the beginning, you mentioned how CSOR is one of the five units within your CAN Softcom. So could you give some view on how? CSOR fits in terms of national missions and those other units. The reason I ask is countries like the United States, we have SEALs, Rangers, Green Berets, and the missions kind of get ambiguous on who does what. Belgians have the same issue, even the Poles have this issue. So I'd like to get a sense from your command point of view as the CSOR commander, what's CSOR useful for? That's kind of question one. And then the other question is CSOR for great power competition. Where does that regiment fit in when we think about the peer adversaries, Russia and China? We would be curious to, to hear this, and I think it'd be helpful for my own personal understanding. Yeah, I know. Good question, Kevin. Thank you for that. So what I would tell you is, um, as an organization as small as uh, Canadian Special Operations Force Command is, it's a little bit easier for us uh, in the sense that um, 
we, we force generate from the units on the basis of capability. So all of the units uh, house specific capability. They're tasked from a force generation perspective to develop those capabilities, evolve those capabilities. We force develop and equip them for those capabilities. So if we use the, the Iraq example or even Afghanistan previously, when we build task forces, we build, that, we build them rapidly because everything's in-house. It doesn't take long for us to do that. But it's about bringing capabilities together to build a product um, that needs to go out the door to meet the intent of the government of Canada. So the task forces uh, are rarely built on the backs of one unit. Uh, they consist of elements of all the units, and that's all of our task forces uh, that go out the door, quite frankly. Um, there is standing task forces, uh, obviously, for, for shorter notices to move uh, that go out the door. But even those standing task forces have elements from the other units uh, embedded within uh, that we can bring together rapidly. So that's the force generation model uh, and how it works for us. Hence why it's so important and critical that all those units belong to CANSOFCOM and aren't, uh, aren't part of the Army, Navy, or Air Force, quite frankly, because it allows us to bring things together quickly, get out the door in a timely fashion, demonstrates agility, and, and again, as the uh, force of last resort, um, in a lot of cases for crisis response specifically, I would say that that's, uh, that's core business for us. Um, yeah, sorry, go, sorry, the other part of the question, Kevin, just... Second part is how do you see the Canadian Special Operations Regiment positioned for great power competition right. against the pure adversaries, given the shift, the transition, we're moving from the Middle East and the, the counter-terrorist fight to near peers or peers. Yeah, perfect. So we are a people-based organization, and this uh, this applies at uh, CSOR as, as, as much as any of the other units. And what I mean there is we're not platform-based. Um, our value, again, is, is about people. It's about interacting. It's about cultural uh, understanding, rapidly developing those, uh, those understandings uh, as soon as we, uh, we, we hit the ground, wherever that might be. Um, we've, we've done great uh, work on that in Afghanistan, Iraq, um, parts of Africa. And I think the value moving into uh, to Eastern Europe, should that be the case, um, is that uh, it, the ability to, to interact with people, the ability to understand culture, and the ability to, uh, to, to build relationships. Um, so I think those three things are important. And what that offers us, because um, everything's about national interest, is it really offers us access, awareness, and, and influence um, moving forward, uh, depending on where Canada, Canada wants to situate itself. We talk about uh, positioning ourselves for crisis response. I think it's really important. Uh, we need to understand environments instead of getting parachuted in at the last minute. Um, and trying to work our way through. Um, it, it's, uh, it's better to be in those environments for some time up front to understand the culture, understand the organizations that we're gonna work with, develop relationships, and uh, that opens a lot of doors. So that's kind of the model uh, and, and how we see uh, the value proposition, especially for the regiment. So I really appreciate that. It's also unique how you, the task force concept, I find quite intriguing where you have task force that are composed of multiple units as opposed to one unit being the task force, uh, which is quite prevalent, certainly in the US system, but also with other countries. So I think that's perhaps something to evaluate for the future for all of us. <laughs> yeah, it's, interesting. It's, it's, uh, it's interesting is we, we mirror that on the conventional side as well. You know, when we when we deploy forces uh, overseas, it's, it's, uh, it's always as a task force of, of multiple units, which um, I think is interesting that that difference that you highlighted, sir, between um, having all of those in-house, so to speak, within CanSoftcom certainly streamlines that 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 task force creation process because it's certainly in the conventional side it's it's much more complex uh, uh, because the units are you know I remember uh, my last deployment 
just in our own little organization that we deployed with, we had units from literally across Canada um, and, you know, different formations, different headquarters to make this happen, different components, even your primary reserve and, and regular force. So it was, you know, just orders of magnitude more complexity. So, and which of course slows it down too. So that speaks to the agility that can Southcom offers, which I think is really interesting. Um, and, and I think, yeah, if I, could, and I think back to your question about uh, soft conventional integration, the other example I would give you is there's very few task forces we have where we're not augmented by the, the larger conventional forces. So specifically in the um, signals or intelligence fields where we just don't have the capacity to do rotation after rotation, uh, we rely heavily on uh, on, on the, the bigger uh, Canadian Armed Forces to, uh, to provide augmentation. That works really well. So that's yeah. partnerships. It's a lot of work back here in Ottawa, making sure that uh, we're keeping people apprised. Uh, we're sustaining those partnerships at the highest levels to make sure that uh, when we have a requirement, folks are ready to go out the door. We train together. Uh, we bring folks in for periods of time to give them exposure to CANSOFT, to, to understand CANSOFT, uh, so that they're ready to go uh, should we need them. Yeah, and I think that goes a long way. You talked about culture earlier, right? About building those healthy, cohesive, inclusive cultures that we're, we're all about in order to, to you know, because at the end of the day, the Canadian Armed Forces is all about deploying cohesive teams. Um, and, and that's that's one way to do it. I think that's, that's fantastic. If you don't mind, I'd love to pivot to uh, another question here on, on the question again of integration, but rolling it up a layer. Uh, so we've, we've talked really a lot about soft integration within the Canadian context, but I'd love to get your take, sir, on how soft and perhaps even CSOR in particular has integrated with other soft elements from other countries around the world. Because again, part of your value proposition, I think is that ability uh, to work with others um, and the 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 added value of working with other soft organizations and how that works, how you see that working in, you know, understanding, of course, there's probably not a lot of detail you can get into, but just get the perspective that you're, you're comfortable sharing with us today. That'd be awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I think this is a beautiful thing. You know, maybe I'm a bit biased. I've been here for 19 years, but uh, the global soft network, as we refer to it, is just an, it's an incredible, incredibly powerful thing. And I think it dates back, I may be wrong here, but I think it's Admiral McRaven, kind of that time period where he was commander US SOCOM. And it was about opening uh, the kimono, so, so to speak, a little bit more and getting the U.S. Uh, involved with, with partners around the world and being, uh, being uh, greater by the sum of our parts uh, than individual soft units, uh, maybe some bilateral relationships, et cetera, et cetera. So just a couple of examples of that. Five Eyes Soft is, is extremely important to us. So we work uh, on a regular basis with Five Eyes Soft. I talk to my counterparts. The commander talks to his current counterparts. Key staff here talk to their counterparts all the way down to the units who are consistently dealing with uh, with Five Eyes Soft partners. So we have embeds uh, around the globe uh, with our partners. Uh, we have uh, embeds here from, from those partner forces as well that work uh, either within the units or here in the headquarters. So that's the Five Eyes piece. And again, I think that's been uh, extremely, uh, extremely powerful. You know, it, it's a bit cliche, but we fought and bled together and uh, we really understand each other and we all work well together. Now expand that out into NATO soft. So NATO uh, Special Operations Headquarters uh, in, in, in uh, Belgium, uh, they have about uh, 28 to 30 partners, uh, soft partners that work within that environment as well. And there's an, a whole other layer of, uh, of relationships that exist within NATO soft. So from a Canadian perspective, we have great relationships with uh, the Poles, the French, obviously, um, countries like, uh, like Norway, and I'm probably missing a whole bunch. I mean, we just, we really double down on those relationships and it's really important to us. And then there's a number of other partners, uh, you know, the Swedes and the Finns, for instance, both countries that we've uh, recently worked with in Iraq, uh, quickly uh, established relationships uh, and we're able to, to operate together. Um, 
you know, countries that, uh, that, that are in Europe, uh, not necessarily part of NATO, but uh, are, are interoperable. So this whole idea of interoperability um, is, is critically important. The last layer I'll talk about is the partner forces that we uh, that we build, uh, the partner forces that we, uh, we we establish relationships with. So whether that's in parts of Africa, um, where we've built uh, partner forces that are integrated again through uh, through our, our European and, and U.S. allies, uh, as to how we're developing them to make sure it's consistent, to make sure that those forces become interoperable, and they leave an enduring uh, soft capability on the ground. Uh, you know, one day when we all uh, leave those uh, those environments. So those are a few examples. Um, again, you can extend that to Iraq. Uh, you can extend that to, to other parts of the globe as well. I've been focused on Eastern Europe. That's my special specialization in terms of region for about the past decade. And we work a lot with partners to include the Latvians on what we in the US call unconventional warfare. So helping them think about resistance, national resistance. I know this is something, what I understand is not a doctrinal term within Canadian soft, I was wondering if you could comment about how Canadian soft looks at that particular mission within either a Canadian soft context or the broader context. I.e., what is what is the role in unconventional warfare for Canadian soft forces? Yeah, thanks, Kevin. Um, what I would tell you is we are we are looking at that, and uh, again, you know, we we uh, we don't want to be stuck uh, behind everybody else and still kind of in this counter-violent extremist organization space. Although I would say that's uh, not necessarily something that's going away. Uh, it's a threat that we still have to keep an eye on. We can talk about that after. But as we look to uh, our value proposition in Europe, especially on the Eastern flank, um, you're absolutely right. Resistance, uh, that ability for countries to sustain kind of some kind of resistance to, to any aggression, uh, awaiting, whether that's awaiting NATO to arrive or, or otherwise, um, is, is important. And it's something we need to think about. It's not something we've traditionally done, um, this idea of unconventional warfare. And I, I would say it's different than that because this idea of overthrowing governments, I think uh, can be parsed in various ways. I'm not sure uh, politically how palatable that is in, in, in a number of countries. I don't wanna speak on behalf of, of the political side or policy side of the house, but nonetheless, I think we need to be uh, a little clearer on, on, on the terminology and the definition of, of what these things mean. We've gotta be careful too that um, deterrence, is, uh, deterrence is where we're at today. And uh, there's got to be contingency plans, but I think we have to be confident in the fact that uh, deterrence is going to be successful. And whether that's you know on the ground exercising, showing uh, alliances uh, with partners, you know whether that's the 30 NATO countries together, fragments of that, um, those are the things that are going to deter aggression or make uh, aggressors think twice about uh, coming across the border uh, for whatever valid reason they 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 would assume that that be. Um, so. Yes, so we need to think about contingency plans, but at the same time, we need to respect the deterrence piece that's happening right now. That's fascinating that you bring forward uh, deterrence uh, within the context of special operations forces, um, because I think that's that's something that people don't maybe always always consider as as a logical connection. Um, certainly, when I teach this with my students, you know, the idea of you know classical deterrence, we think of nuclear weapons. And, um, you know, I always drill in my students that, that deterrence has two components, which is, you know, capability and intent. But it's this idea of demonstrating that capability and being sort of overt and saying, hey, look what I have. Um, be careful or else I might use it against you, which seems to run counter to, you know, sort of the way in which soft is viewed traditionally, which is you know, in secret behind closed doors. And so in many ways, it almost it, it, it's sort of turning this on its head, saying, you know, we're going to use soft as a deterrent. We have to let people know about what soft does. And I think that's really, really interesting. I was wondering if you would mind, you know, how, how does, is that something that's being considered 
um, in, in, in your corner. Um, how have you dealt with that in the past? How are you balancing that need for operational security, but then still you know, being able to show an, a deterrent uh, to, the, to a potential adversary? So this is a really fascinating question, and it is a topic of great discussion right now. We've spent the last 20 years in the counter DEO fight uh, behind closed doors, behind the veil, um, so to speak. And we do recognize that two things. A, there is a soft component to deterrence, uh, but B, that uh, that uh, that component needs to be out there, especially in the information environment. There's a battle going on in the information environment to, to demonstrate uh, capability and intent, like you said, uh, Christian. And a big part of that is to deter uh, aggressors from uh, from act activities or actions that uh, that uh, we don't we don't want to happen. So this is a discussion, and there is going to be uh, parts of of Cansoftcom, like uh, all of our uh, soft partners, that are going to be exposed. But we have to think about what that means in the second and third order effects of exposing, uh, you know, whether that's capability, whether that's people, whether that's uh, you know partnerships. Um, and then again, there's always going to be the covert and clandestine pieces of, of the business uh, that uh, that will be exposed, but are, that are taking place on a regular basis. So very complicated and complex. Uh, this is part of the evolution that uh, I think your podcast is driving at right now. And uh, and it's fascinating discussions that are taking place, but uh, absolutely at the forefront of discussion when it comes to great power competition. All right, sir. Well, well thank you so much for, uh, for your time with us. Um, we're certainly we we've covered the ground that we set out to do, and I appreciate your uh, your entertaining our our tangential questions and segues. Um, this was really really interesting. Is there anything that that uh, you feel we have left unsaid that you want to highlight before we 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 wrap up? Any uh, loose rounds as we like to say that you want to expand? Yeah. So I the the one area that I would uh, I would add is um, quite frankly at the risk of sounding a little bit behind the uh, the evolution here. We just have to be aware of wildcards, and you know we are focused on great power competition. We're focused, like everybody else, on on the changing environment out there. Um, but at the end of the day, wildcards are something that uh, that we need to pay attention to. So what am I talking about? I'm talking about roads, rogue states, uh, revisionist uh, non-state actors, and I'll give you an example. Uh, Iraq uh, 2011 with the U.S. withdrawal. It wasn't long before we saw the rise of ISIS, and uh, there's various perspectives. I've talked to many Americans on this. Um, their perspective. I wrote a paper on this at Staff College, but quite frankly, when you pull out uh, the tactical elements and you don't have that uh, ear to the ground, so to speak, you lose uh, a great deal of perspective on what's actually happening, on what the uh, the conditions are for the population, on what their grievances are, those types of things. So, although the United States maintained a uh, strategic um, eye or, or lens on on the region. Uh, I would argue um, that uh, we lost the, the the ground truth, so to speak. And what we saw was the rise of ISIS. So what happens in Afghanistan? What happens next? Um, we've seen the, uh, the the chaos over the last little while, if I, I wouldn't frame it any differently. Um, and now we have to keep a close eye on, will the Taliban form a legitimate, air quote, government? Uh, will we see the rise of, uh, of non-state actors and, and threats uh, in that space? I don't know. So that's one aspect when it comes to non-state actors. When it comes to state actors, there's a lot of unpredictability out there. We've got uh, Iran, who's uh, you know a regional hegemon for all intents and purposes in the Middle East. Uh, we don't know where that's going to go with uh, with uh, higher policies and agreements with the West. Um, we've got North Korea, who remains a, a regional threat. So all of these things in the main uh, are things that we need to keep our eye on. So the next shiny object, so to speak, great power competition. We, we know there's uh, threats pending in East Europe, in, in Asia Pacific. 
there's competition playing out. We want to be part of that. But again, I, I don't think we we necessarily want to lose sight of all those other things that uh, that, that are, are are on our doorstep. So uh, today, uh, that's a great point, sir. Thanks for that. And uh, it's those black swan events or those wild cards, as you say, that that always trip us up. So I think uh, an eye to that is important. Um, sir, thank you so much. And you know, also, we really appreciate the uh, the shout out and the endorsement at the front end of this this conversation. That was wonderful. So so thank you for that too. And uh, we hope to continue this project. And um, you know, um, all the best. And we'll, we'll certainly keep in touch and uh, circle back to some of these if, if we need to. Uh, if that would be yeah. Right. Thanks, Christian, and and to you and Kevin. Uh, you know, I've listened to a lot of these podcasts on special operations, and this one it's exceptional. It's uh, it, it's a really great look at uh, where things are going. Um, and I think you've had some really, uh, really interesting guests. You've had some from here in Kansas. The international flavor, I think, is really important. And like I said, I, I really enjoyed that first episode and, and some of the uh, framing that, uh, that you did on the front end. So thanks to you and Kevin. Uh, I, I really appreciate that this is being done out of Canada. Um, we're really proud of that as a command. Uh, and on behalf of Major General Boivin and the rest of Kansas, thanks for everything you're doing. Sir, sure, thanks very much for the kind words. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. All the best. Bye-bye.